0: So when I was a teenager, there was a guy who went to my high school who was known to be a serial cheater. Not in the sense of cheating on tests, but uh, in the sense of being unfaithful in his relationships. It was well known in our school that he would cheat on all of his girlfriends, uh, often several times each. And at one point, he ended up dating one of my closest friends, which I wasn't too happy about. And to nobody's surprise, except I guess hers, Uh, He cheated on her multiple times. And every time he would tearfully apologize to her and explain how it was never going to happen again and how this time he was going to be faithful, and then he would go out and cheat on her again. Well, this made me really angry. Uh, I really did not like this guy. And because of that, in my interactions with him, I was not very nice. Uh, You could say I was not an image of Christ in his life. Yeah. Well, that was a long time ago, and we've since all graduated high school, and I have no idea what happened to him. My friend did eventually wise up and break up with him, which I was quite happy about. But I do still think about him sometimes. And I wonder what would have happened if I had not been so not nice to him. You know, if I had tried to be a positive influence in his life, because I interacted with him pretty regularly. And I wonder if things would have maybe turned out differently. Now, I don't know, of course. I can't know that. It's long in the past. But sometimes I still wonder. I think a lot of us know people like that, or have known people like that. Uh, not in the sense of them being serial cheaters, um, but in the sense that they're just they're people that you can't, seem to be very nice around. You don't like them, and you would rather take your anger out on them and make it known that you don't like them than try to be a positive influence in their life and maybe see them change. So maybe for you, that's one person. Maybe for you, that's a group of people. I'm sure all of us have a person or people in our lives that we just really do not like. So this month, we're doing a series on the book of Jonah, focusing on how Jonah's story is often our story. Two weeks ago, we looked at how Jonah ran away from God when his beliefs about God and about people didn't match up with what God was calling him to do, and how we also often run away from God when God calls us to something that seems beyond our beliefs. Then last week, we looked at how Jonah ran away from God and ended up thrown into the ocean, um, but even the bottom of the ocean was not too far away for God to save Jonah, And when we run from God, we too often end up in deep and dark places. But that nowhere we can run is too far away for God to save us, if we are willing to recommit to following him. This week we'll be looking at the third chapter of Jonah, which is Jonah's work as a prophet in Nineveh. And it seems like Jonah does everything in his power to prevent the Ninevites from understanding the message that God wants to deliver to them through him. He doesn't want to spread God's love to the people that he doesn't like. And often we are the same way. As Christians, we have this amazing new life in Christ, and we want to share God's love with everyone around us, except maybe for those people over there. They don't deserve God's love. And chapter 3 of Jonah challenges our beliefs about who does or doesn't deserve God's love. So let's take a look at the passage. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the messages I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a great city to God. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth and let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He relented and did not bring on them the destruction He had threatened. So chapter three begins with Jonah receiving a new call to go to Nineveh to proclaim the word of the Lord. It's a fresh start for Jonah, and in fact, the wording of the first verse of chapter three and the wording of the first verse of chapter one are almost identical. The author really wants to drive home that this is a second chance, a do-over for Jonah. And Jonah does go to Nineveh this time. The text goes out of its way to say that Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord in going to Nineveh. And so he's learned the lesson that we talked about last week. When we recommit ourselves to following God, that has to show up in our lives in real actions. In the belly of the whale, Jonah recommitted himself to following God, and here he makes good on that commitment. Except, you may remember from last week that Jonah's prayer in the belly of the whale included a line about people who worship idols and how they don't deserve God's love. And that line was probably a subtle dig at the Ninevites that Jonah was called to preach to. And so Jonah is willing to go, he's willing to do what God tells him to do, but he still doesn't think that the Ninevites actually deserve God's love or his mercy. He's recommitted himself to following God's call, but his beliefs about God and about people have not changed. He's experienced an amazing salvation, but he doesn't want to share his salvation with those people, with the people that Jonah doesn't like. And so we see in this chapter that he technically follows God's instructions, but he does everything in his power to foil God's plan while following God's plan. So to start, we know he only went one day in the city. His trip was supposed to be a three-day journey. Now, Nineveh was not three days end-to-end. We have unearthed the ruins of the walls of Nineveh, and it's not that big. But it probably would have taken Jonah three days to wind through the whole city, to go through every street and to go door-to-door proclaiming his message. You can imagine the difference between driving through a city on a highway versus winding through every suburb. One of those is a lot better way to reach every person in the city. And so Jonah only does one-third of the work. He only winds through one-third of the city, and only one-third of the Ninevites hear the message directly from Jonah. Jonah is probably hoping that not enough of them hear it, or enough of them hear a distorted version like a game of telephone, that they don't repent, enough of them don't repent for the whole city to be spared. Jonah's message is also missing important details. So he prophesies that the city will be overturned in 40 days, but he doesn't tell the people what their sins actually are or how to turn back to God. Typically a biblical prophetic oracle, so an oracle from a prophet in the Bible, includes those three things. So there's the um, the outfit of destruction, which Jonah does do. And then it moves to a list of sins or wrongdoing and then finishes with a call for repentance. And so if you read through the other prophets in the Bible, you'll see that pattern over and over and over. And so the fact that it's missing here is conspicuous. Jonah only prophesies destruction. In fact, his whole speech is only five words in the original Hebrew. It's about as short as it could possibly be. He's hoping that the Ninevites won't catch on, that repentance is an option. If he can get them to think that destruction is inevitable, they won't have any reason to change. And so I think it's worth asking why Jonah is so dead set on making sure the Ninevites didn't repent. Because Jonah seems to be trying really hard to make sure the Ninevites don't get the message. So in the previous weeks, we talked about how Jonah's reluctance is probably, partly, politically motivated. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, and Assyria was the enemies of the kingdom of Israel. And Jonah seems to be a supporter of the Israelite monarchy. And so he doesn't want to help the people who are the enemies of the political figures that he supports. And so often we also don't like people for political reasons. And that can be people outside our country, like is the case with Jonah, Or it can be people inside our country, people who vote differently than you, and you think that they're ruining the country. You don't see how God could possibly be at work in those people's lives, given the political positions that they hold. But I think for Jonah, it's probably also personal. Because the Assyrians were extremely brutal in the way that they ruled their empire and the way that they fought wars. They maintained their supremacy in the region through campaigns of violence and terror. So I have a picture to show you. This is not graphic, but here's a picture. There you go. This is an Assyrian wall carving that we unearthed from an ancient Assyrian city. And this wall carving depicts the Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal, and he's lounging in his garden, and he's being attended to by servants, and there are harpists and flute players serenading him, and there are fruit trees in the background. It's an image of of paradise And then decorating the fruit trees are the severed heads of Ashurbanipal's enemies. And so if you were a political rival or an enemy of the king, your head ended up decorating the royal gardens. We know from the Bible that when the Assyrians conquered a town or a city, they would cart the people off into slavery. And they would do it by putting a hook through their nose and dragging them around like cattle. And so they treated their slaves like livestock and not people. And we've learned from sources outside the Bible what Assyrians would do to the leaders of revolts and to rebels. They would capture the leaders and they would gouge out their eyes and cut off their arms and then dump them at the crossroads outside of town to serve as a living reminder of what happens when you cross the Assyrian empire. And so the Assyrians maintain their control through violence and through terror. And so it makes sense that Jonah would not want these people to receive God's favor. He would have known about all of this stuff. And in fact, he may have even known people personally who were brutalized by the Assyrians. And so it is a completely normal and human response for Jonah not to want the Assyrians to be spared from God's wrath. Jonah probably wants the Assyrians to get what they deserve. He wants to see justice done, or probably more than justice. He wants to see vengeance. He wants to see his anger satisfied. And so in chapter 4, he goes to a hill outside the city to watch the fireworks, so to speak. He wants to see the fire fall from heaven and consume the city of Nineveh. He wants to see the Assyrians suffer the way that his people suffered. And so I think many of us can probably identify with Jonah in this moment when we've been hurt or we've been wronged or we've been treated unfairly or that happens to somebody that we care about. We want to see the people who wronged us pay. Even as Christians, we have this amazing new life in Christ. We want to share God's love with everyone except for those people, those bad people over there. Because if they don't get saved and they end up in hell, well, maybe that wouldn't be so bad. I don't think many of us would go so far as to say that or to express it in those terms, but I think many of us have felt that way at one point or another. We experience God's love in our lives, but we don't want the people who hurt us to also experience that love. But God's view on things is different the book of Jonah describes Nineveh as a great city to God. Now, this might just be talking about how big the city was, um, that even God thought it was impressively large from his seat up in heaven. And this kind of language, you know, impressive to God, great to God, gets used elsewhere in the Bible in that way. But in the context of the book of Jonah, I think it carries a second meaning, and it means that God cares about this city. Nineveh is a city that matters to God. Even though they worship idols, even though they are incredibly violent and brutal, and even though they are incredibly violent and brutal towards God's chosen people, God still cares about the Ninevites. And he wants to see them turn from their evil ways. He wants to see them turn and be saved. He wants to see them transformed into new people. Because the truth is that God loves Everyone, even the people we don't like. Every person is handmade by God. They're one of God's incredible masterpieces. Everyone is a child of God, and God loves all of his children. We see the same teaching come up in the New Testament. There's lots of examples I could have chosen, but I want to talk about one in particular. So in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And this is a story found in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 10. I won't read the whole story here, but I'll give you a short summary version. And so it's a story about a Jewish man who is beaten and robbed and left for dead on the side of the road. And several other Jewish men, uh, who are in fact religious leaders, uh, should have been examples of what it means to live a godly life. They pass the man by and they don't help him. And the person who eventually helps The Jewish man is a Samaritan. And now if you've heard a sermon on the Good Samaritan before, you probably know that the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other very intensely. Um, The Samaritan religion was similar to the Jewish religion, but they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, and they had their own holy mountain where they made sacrifices. They did not go to Jerusalem to make their sacrifices to God. And these religious differences were the cause of the hatred and the strife between the Jews and the Samaritans. And it seems weird to us today because they had far more in common with each other than they did with all of the cultures around them. Certainly they had more in common with each other than they did with the Romans who ruled over both of them. But I think if we look at our own lives, often the people that we dislike the most intensely are the people who are the most like us except different in a few key ways. And so you don't have to look any further than the long history of violence between different Christian groups, for example, even though we should all be brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Jesus uses uses this example of a Samaritan helping a Jew as an example of what it looks like to love the people around you because the people around you includes the people that you don't like. Now you may be thinking that that's easy for God to say because He's removed from the situation. He's up in heaven and He doesn't know what it's like to be me. He doesn't know what it feels like to be me. You know, you don't know what this person has done to me. You don't know um, this reason and that reason and those reasons I have for not wanting to show your love to those people. You know, sometimes we can think that way that God is distant and remote, but actually God knows exactly what it is like to be hurt by other people because he came into the world as Jesus and he experienced the hurt and the pain that we experience. And so in Jesus' day, the Assyrians were long gone, but in their place, the Roman Empire now ruled over the known world using terror and violence. And their go-to method of punishment was crucifixion, which they had invented as, on purpose, the most painful way they could think of to kill somebody. The agony of crucifixion was drawn out over days as the person hung there, slowly suffocating. And the road to Rome was lined with crosses for miles. And Jesus was crucified on one of those crosses by that oppressive Roman government, and as he hung on that cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so even as Jesus hung there in agony, he wished for the people who were torturing him to receive forgiveness. Jonah is not so loving, and he does as little as possible, hoping that the Assyrians won't repent. But the amazing thing is that God was able to use what little Jonah provided to bring the Ninevites to repentance. And so because Jonah was at least committed to following God was able to do something amazing. There's a funny little double meaning in Jonah's five-word prophecy that in 40 days, Nineveh would be overturned. That word overturned in English makes us think of destruction or regime change, but in Hebrew, it literally just means turn over. You can think about like making pancakes, you turn them over. And so sometimes that, used, that word is used to talk about destruction, as we would use it, as we understand it today. And so there are cities that are destroyed in the Bible that are said to have been overturned. But there are other places in the Bible where that word is used to talk about the turning over of people's hearts in repentance. And so Jonah's little five-word prophecy comes true. Actually, it comes more than true because it takes a lot less than 40 days for Nineveh to be turned over. Their hearts are turned over in repentance as they realize what they've done. And one thing that always strikes me is that it is a complete repentance from the greatest to the least, from the king to the cows. Because yes, even the cows participate in the repentance in the book of Jonah. And so Jonah may have only done one-third of the work, but God was able to use it to accomplish his ends anyway. And Nineveh is saved. Jonah's story is our story. That is what we have been saying for the past few weeks. And we've been saying that we often don't realize that Jonah's story is our story. But in the case of chapter 3, I think we often don't want to admit that Jonah's story is our story. When we commit or recommit ourselves to God, we experience his love in amazing new ways. We don't want that love to be shared with the people that we don't like, those people over there. And we don't want to admit that we feel that way, because if we were willing to admit it, it would mean we would have to change the way that we think about those people and treat those people. If the book of Jonah is a mirror to our lives, we often don't want to look in the mirror. But if we are willing to look and we are willing to see ourselves, then the book of Jonah and the Bible as a whole calls us to love the people that we don't like. God's love is far wider and far more inclusive than we could ever imagine. And so as you go into this week, I do have a couple questions that I want you to think about. You don't have to answer them right away, but it's worth mulling them over. So the first question is, who do you not like? And if I could say that in more words, who could God forgive that would make you really angry? I can tell you that guy from my high school, if God had forgiven him when I was in high school at the time, that would have made me really angry. And if you have an answer to that question, then the second question is, how can I show God's love to that person or to those people? And so you don't have to have answers to these questions, but think about them in the week to come. So I'd ask that you join me now in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you today as people who have prejudices and biases. We have people that we don't like, and we don't want those people to receive your love. We often struggle with how wide and how inclusive your love is. And so we come before you today asking for forgiveness for the times that we have withheld your love from the people that we don't like. But also, Lord, I want to thank you for the breadth of your love. Thank you for extending your grace to include flawed and broken people because, Lord, we know that we are among those flawed and broken people. You know, just like how we often don't want to see your love extended to others, there are others who don't want to see your love extended to us. And so thank you for including us anyway. Lord, as we go into this week, we ask that you would help us love with your love. God, we know how you teach us to love. We know it in our heads, but we're not very good at putting it into action. And so to help us, please live out your calling for us. Transform our hearts so that we love the way that you love. And as we go into this week, Lord, we pray that your presence be with us, that you guide us through our struggles and the decisions that we face. And we pray this in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.